We're back. Welcome to our special film formally mini-series. Friend of the podcast, Sophie Renvari's short films are, as you may or may not have heard, now available for streaming on the Criterion channel. To mark this occasion, we're joining Sophie to record a series of commentary tracks. These feature the writer, director, co-editor, and sometimes star, Sophie herself. Each episode will be synchronized to a specific film available on the Criterion channel. Just have the short film for this commentary ready to go and press play on the movie when you hear a ding. Like that. You don't need to worry about getting the sync too perfect. After the film, we'll have a little bit of extra discussion that isn't bound by the chains of synchronization. This commentary is for Nine Behind. Here we are with Sophie Ramvari, friend, now the record holder for most guest appearances on our show by someone who is not our producer. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Sophie is going to be joining us for a series of six commentaries split into six episodes about the six of the films that you directed that are being released on the Criterion channel this month. And they will have already been released by the time you heard this podcast. So you'll have a time to, of course, peruse all of them. However, six of them are particularly relevant for the film Formerly Crew because Will and I both helped you realize those films. I was cinematographer and colorist on these six, those six being Nine Behind, It's Him, Pumpkin Movie, Norman Norman, In Dog Years, and Still Processing. Will was variously a sound editor, editor, and composer. Uh, Nine Behind is, you know, your, I, th I think we all consider that your f kind of first uh, work as an independent film artist in the world, perhaps, but this is not the first film you created. As viewers will be aware, everyone knows your biography. We, you went to... <laughs> You went to the Capitolino University of Film and made some films there. I think it's interesting, though, the differences between those films and what you ended up creating. Can you tell us about the films you made before this and how they might have informed your work on Non Behind, especially? So I went to a four-year undergrad for film at uh, Capitolino University, and I received what is called a motion picture arts degree so I, I did the four years there not really knowing I wanted to direct as a career, but I just kept being pulled into wanting to direct. So it just, it, it kind of, directing chose me. <laughs> I didn't, I really, I really thought I was going to be a production designer because I had understood that my grandpa was a production designer. So I was like, that seems right. But then uh, the more I directed, the more it felt right. But the films that I directed in film school were all written by other students because Capilano is anti-auteur. They want everyone, for you know some good reasons and some bad, they want everyone to spread the positions out and so that you know no one student is overtaking the entire creative process. But there's different ways to do that. You know, you can have everyone make their own work, but the way that they've set up the program is that there's only about five or six projects that get made every year. So you have to pitch to direct to a panel of professors and you can only pitch films that were written by other students and that have been pre-selected by professors so you know just like in Hollywood so I had to 
So for four years, I, I pitched to direct in the spring term, and I got to, I did get to direct four projects while I was in school, all of which, if you saw, you probably would not recognize as my work. I am glad I got to make them because it got gave me the familiarity with you know the technical side of filmmaking, and it kind of showed to myself like the ambition I had around filmmaking, but it didn't give me any pleasure whatsoever. <laughs> I shouldn't say any pleasure. No, it was just, it was very different. It was not very satisfying. I'd finish the films and, and, and I would achieve some of the goal of making it not look like a student film. In, but I, I really didn't feel anything was personally achieved on an artistic level. Yeah. I remember like when we first talked about Nine Behind, one of your worries that you brought up was that you were afraid that you would never... Uh, make a film that was like truly personal to you that was like truly yours and that was something you seem to really have coming out of that capilano experience was a sense of a lack of personal ownership over what you made yeah no that's definitely true i i think i have hit kind of a crisis point where i was like i can't just make films about middle-aged white men having like a midlife crisis about some high concept um it's just not gonna it's not gonna cut it <laughs> Yeah, you have to go through those experiences, I think, to, to find out what you do want to do. Like, you have to do what you don't want to do sometimes first to figure out what what you do want to do. Part of the reason I did the four years of the program was when I was in first year, they announced this fund called the Launchpad Fund. And it was meant to be for any student that graduated the four years was eligible to pitch for $100,000 for their first, like, project outside of film school. And the eligibility was only for students that finished the four years so that was the main reason that I did the four years a lot of people left after one or two and went into the film industry but I, I knew that I had ambitions to make like a feature film eventually I found out recently that that program has been discontinued and I will no longer be eligible because it doesn't exist it's interesting how I think your film school experience was so radically different from Will and I's because we also attended a four-year program at SFU but we were I think almost to a fault we were kind of pushed to be like independent film artists who thought we were above the industry. <laughs> and like, that was a real strain of thought. I have my own thoughts for another day on that. But I, I think that I kind of our, all of our mutual experiences ended up combining in an in interesting ways over the years. Yes, I agree. Cause I, as uh, you know, might not be obvious to everybody, but I did not meet Will and Devin in my film school at Capilano. They went to a different film school. We only met after I had graduated. I, you know, I made a lot of great friends in the program, but I didn't meet anybody that was I necessarily was going to go on to collaborate with. And I think a lot of people ended up going into film industry proper from Capilano, you know, like line producers or grips or art department. You know, they're probably all they probably all like have like apartment or a car by now. <laughs> so I'm very happy for them but it's it definitely you know there wasn't that many people that were determined to make their own work so that's part of what I was really disappointed leaving that program with was not having found you know my collaborators uh you know I'd read about like Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson meeting in university and being like where's my Owen Wilson or you know whatever or you know people that meet these lifelong collaborators in film school because that's where you're supposed to meet like-minded people so that's why it was a big big revelation to meet you get your copy of the movie ready to start playing we're gonna start in five four three two one 
All right, here we are, nine behind our first film together, all of us. So Sophie, I think what I'm really curious to hear about is what inspired this? So this is gonna sound a lot more meaningful than it is, but I, I came up with the concept when I was watching a Pasolini film, <laughs> the, the Gospel According to St. Matthew. I was watching it at this, and I remember just being so taken with the film in general, but also the performances and being so moved. And it just, as it's probably struck every audience or filmmaker or anyone in between of watching a foreign language film and you're watching a performance that is not in your native tongue, how those performances differ for someone who understands the language versus not. And I was just struck with that idea of like how cinema across different languages can perform differently for different worldviews and understandings and from different countries. And so it made me think about wanting to explore that and then it which led to wanting to direct something in Hungarian which for me is a bit complicated because I did used to speak Hungarian when I was a child I spoke it until I was about five or six but then I lost the language after my parents immigrated they didn't think it was you know it's not a common language so I think that they, they didn't really think it was useful to hold on to it but of course to me now I feel like that is a loss and then that kind of, yeah, that sparked the, the concept of wanting to explore that loss. It ties in a little bit with um, just the personal experience you have having family in Hungary, right? Mm -hmm. I met my grandfather once. Um, and I knew vaguely that he was a production designer, but I didn't really understand what that meant until much later in my life. But I think once I realized I wanted to be in film and once I kind of came to that on my own, rather than what you would expect, you know, I have a, it seems like I have a history of film from the outside, but then it just wasn't really passed down to me in the same way that most families would. And then I just started to feel like, oh, it's really, it's too bad that I didn't have that connection. So then this is like my attempt to make that connection with my grandfather you know after he already had passed away through through the film that's why i wanted to make the film one-sided because there was no there was not going to be an answer on the other side and i wanted to just kind of explore that emotionally but through like a formal decision of not showing what the other person is saying and it was, i think it was the first time i really thought about form to be honest before that i i would watch movies and be really moved by them for a variety of reasons. But then it, it, it only really occurred to me like what you can do emotionally through different camera placement and formal choices. It's, it's those things that you don't know, you, you like are absorbing and recognizing, but you don't have the language for it until you do.
Oh, this this next cut, I love it. This vertical line match when uh, on the cut between the kitchen table scenes. It's interesting how um, that kind of manifests in the film itself because you have a few very deliberate formal decisions here that some of which you haven't repeated since. The decision to only, I think, have 11 cuts in the whole film. The film has a fun play with time in that way, right? There's only 11 cuts, but um, there's a ton of time dilation. The time passes extraordinarily quickly in terms of the day ending. And you've also got the decision to shoot it in black and white, which I don't... Have you shot a film in black and white since? I don't think so. No. No. That might be Pasolini's, uh, <laughs> Pasolini's fault. No, I, I, no, I think, um, I mean, I definitely was watching, I had just gotten into Ackerman at the time. So that's, this is definitely the most like clear, like direct inspiration from another filmmaker that I think comes into play with my work. Just watched you two, and I think just the striking visuals in that probably, you know, I've seen some like shot by shot comparisons that I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me before we made this film, but I'm like, yeah, it was definitely ripping off Ackerman. Um, oh, it's a terrible thing to say. Ripping off Ackerman? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, no, you know, it's noble to acknowledge your own thievery. No. Yeah, um, no, I don't know. I mean, I uh, this is actually this is a interesting experience for me because I'm finding I honestly don't remember. I don't remember like what my specific inspirations were and like what I was thinking at the time because you're right, like it is very different than the other. Well, I mean, I've done a lot of like sort of wide wide shot like longer take things since then, but this is a lot more related to like the conversation taking place like only within those shots. It makes sense as like, you know, the first personal film because the formal conceits are very spare and direct, right? Long takes, black and white, really strong sound perspective shifts, like in that moment when she moves from the inside of the apartment to outside and things get a lot noisier, right? Like it's it's a film that works like really with strong, heavy contrast. And I think that's like a really appealing way for a lot of people when they're starting that move into like exploring different avenues of film grammar and form that's a good way to get your feet wet as it were totally and i think it's very i think the reason that we were able to do it was because it was simple like it was just we shot in my friend leah's apartment noemi who's the star of the film i worked with her behind concession at the rio theater everything we shot it in one day so that kind of started the trajectory of making films that had like very simple conceits with like one or two people in them shot in apartments and we've stuck through that for the most part <laughs> yeah it's it's funny usually i'd say oh we had no resources on this film but of all the films this probably had the second most resources that we're going to talk about today really is that true yeah i think so like the rest the rest all had smaller crews than this this had five people i think i mean this is the only film that we've cut in the same room together and we can talk about that more later but I, I often point out to people that this film has like a fifth as many cuts as most of the films I edit, but we spent like five times as much time on individual cuts as the rest of them, right? Like simplicity, it's it's great, but like you end up like really wringing your hands over like every small decision because it has such a big impact on the whole. And it was interesting because we couldn't, neither one of us could understand what the language, so we kind of... <laughs> 
in terms of like selecting best performance, like that wasn't necessarily the, you know, the most important part. That made long takes a good decision though, because when you're cutting together different takes, sometimes the performances don't match, right? Like the cadence or rhythm of them, right? They're stilted if, if you were trying to edit a different language, but this way it was a little easier to just trust that like, well, it's, she's continuing her own performance. It's probably going to be fine. Yeah, and I remember that we'd like, uh, or I had written the script to be taking place during different lines of dialogue. So we knew that when she was on the couch, she was talking about this, and when she was on the window, she was talking about this. And I remember James, who was script supervising, was like phonetically trying to follow the Hungarian language. <laughs> he, he did great, but it was just, yeah, it was it definitely made for an interesting challenge because Noemi was the only one that could actually speak. Hungarian on set. Um, she translated her own dialogue, didn't she? She translated it. I think she got her her mom uh, or a friend to help her. But yeah, she she's actually Swedish, but her dad I think is Hungarian, so it's not even her first language either. Oh wow, I would never have known. Actually, that's new to me. I, I want to point out this shot as this is the single time on any of our collaborations when you had a moment clearly where you thought I was off my rocker because this is the famous take where um see if you look at the above our actress's head here Vlad's boom Vlad is our sound operator um is completely in the shot <laughs> and I, I was awful and didn't tell you that was the plan because we, me and Vlad were just so used to doing that at that point and you were like what the bleep um, and uh, I'll always remember that moment. Uh, anyways, that's that's my fun story. You you would shoot two different plates, and one during the take with the boom in the shot, so that you get a nice clean perspective where you don't have to have the boom super far away, and then just shoot a clean plate of the same shot after, and you just put the top part of the shot. So you're actually looking at two shots right now, viewers. Yeah, that was the beginning of my trusting uh, Devin's technical uh, wizardry. Never looked back. Uh, I mean, e eagle-eyed viewers, don't trust it too much, because eagle-eyed viewers can probably notice that the top half of the screen is flickering at a different rate than the bottom half. Uh, can't tell, though. <laughs> <laughs> and this was the only close-up in the film, which at the time I thought was just revelatory. I had just started getting into like film criticism and film, you know, theory right after film school, of course. And I just remember hearing close-ups should only be used for a purpose or, you know, close-ups are overused or something. I just like heard a lot of this rhetoric. And so I, I really took that to heart and was just like, okay, I'll make this one impactful. Do you still think close-ups are overused? I mean, I think close-ups are often, they can be used for an impact that is disregarded by a lot of like you know television or mainstream film it's just when you have a head to a head to a head to a head that's not how we see people uh it's not how we experience the world we have more context usually so if you want to take away the rest of the context of a person like you should have a reason for that i think um i mean stylistically it depends on what you're trying to achieve 
I have a question. I want to I want to interrogate you, Sophie, about the day to night transition. What were we all thinking? And how does the film get away with it? Viewers, if you'll notice, it, it transitions from like clearly broad daylight to night in the space of like two minutes at one point. What's your take, Sophie, on how you get away with that? Because that's always fascinated. How I get away with it by working with a talented cinematographer and editor. <laughs> <laughs> I think. How do we all get away with it? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I yeah, I wanted it to take place over one clearly one period of time, but also the you know the title is like a play on the time differences between Hungary and and Vancouver. So you you do see like a passage of time like happen within the film. So having the sunset felt appropriate for that. But it's yeah, you're definitely like having to believe that the sun is setting in the middle of this film. And especially because it's in black and white, it's a little bit more subtle. Like you're not, you know, you're not seeing some blaring orange sunset come in through the window and then slowly dissipate. Uh, you're just seeing light, light changes through the shades. So, I mean, it I never really, like when I'm watching it, it never really occurs to me that it's, if it's jarring or not. Like I, to me, it feels smooth, but I wonder if it feels like confusing for anybody else. I don't know. It's it, I can never watch my films without knowing, <laughs> knowing what I know. <laughs> I think it, I think people generally don't notice it. I mean, it just ties into like the whole film is about like time as a dividing force, right? Like that's basically what it's about, right? Like intergenerational time divisions, uh, geographical time divisions. Like I, I find it, it makes the film like subtly surreal for me in a good way, where it's where I'm never quite sure when watching it. And I've had to quality control this so many times. <laughs> um, I'm never quite sure while watching it whether or not I'm supposed to take the phone conversation as strictly continuous or whether I'm kind of jumping in or out. Even so, the blocking implies continuity, but the time of day implies we're kind of jumping around a bit and missing parts, that there's ellipses. And the editing kind of threads the needle between those where... It emphasizes continuity in some ways, but not in others. Anyways, I find it fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I definitely thought of it as continuous, but I think I also was like still learning about how to put a film together, to be honest. Like when you're writing a script or when you're making your own work, I think it can be easy to forget how shots are tied together and how time passes between them and the ways that you can play with a character getting from point A to point B and you can skip time. I think for this film, I, I was just thinking very literal about time being continuous and it's like because uh, it's it's not a normal way to think about time when you're editing and making a film you can do so many things one from one cut to the next 100 years can go <laughs> it's like yeah i think that kind of imaginary geography you're talking about really plays into how it's him is structured but more geographically it represents a kind of a great expansion of the scope of what you're going for and i think still to this date it's your most production value film. And I put giant scare quotes around that, listeners. Question I have in terms of kind of bridging the gap between your film one and film two in this series. I often find, at least in my own work, and I think Will feels this too, that my next film is usually a reaction to the one before that, right? Um, and I think I'm I, I think I'm particularly extreme in that where it's like, I'll hate my previous film usually and think it's not valid. So I'll try and go in the opposite direction just to be contrarian to myself. I, I don't quite get that sense with your films with maybe a couple exceptions. It's him still feels like it is breaking from Nine Behind in lots of interesting ways. Do you have any thoughts on how you might account for the ways in which It's Him builds upon and breaks from Nine Behind's kind of 
formal and storytelling and even subject matter scheme? I think that I can only answer that now, look, like looking back at all my work as a whole, because when I made all these films, they were not a reaction to each other, but sort of a, there was like a certain urgency to make all of them. And a lot of it had to do with literally what I was going through at the time, uh, emotionally. And I think that that's why they happened rather quickly in most cases. So I wasn't really thinking of them in concert with each other, but just sort of that I had this fire, this inspiration of something that I needed to work through. It seemed like I had figured out that making work that reflected those like emotional experiences I was having was like going to be helpful. I didn't even know at that point that it would be. So I, I yeah, I don't know. I think similarly, like I got the I, I got the concept or came up with the concept for It's Him and really quickly was like, I need to make this. And I was about to move to Toronto. I'm sure you both remember. And I, we had to kind of rush things because I, I think I moved like three days. I got on a plane like three days after we finished shooting this. And so it was kind of there's a lot of urgency behind it. I remember we were in opposite scenarios because I had just come back from a month trip abroad like less than a week before it started so it was kind of in the weird zone that we happened to be both in town together yes yeah I mean I think I didn't even realize that it was so much more ambitious at the time but looking back on it of course there's like so many more locations and so much more happening with the camera and, and actors and it was definitely a huge leap but it still felt so small to me in my mind as a, as a production because the idea is so little yeah it's like it's it's still maybe my favorite pitch you've ever give like said to me before like uh, m making the film i just remember you like describing the premise which is you know girl thinks she sees her long missing brother in a documentary and just it's great it's so clean <laughs> and again it was literally just something that happened like it's just it's I think a lot of my work is quite literal and I struggle with that sometimes because I wonder if I'm not being enough of an artist sometimes or if I'm not being if I'm not like obscuring it enough for it to be considered art or if it's if it needs to be more ambiguous or if that's if art is considered art if it's more impressionistic but I'm being very like literal with my work which I have not really found an answer to to be honest because you know I obviously we find cinematic ways to explore those ideas but I'm really not good at or have not yet really explored fiction in a way that's like completely out of the blue fiction and I have a hard time retelling stories from my life and like completely fictionalizing them in ways that maybe other people are able to it just makes me wonder if it's like a lack of creativity or if it's just the way that I the way that I make films but it's it always kind of troubles me that's an interesting sentiment because I think the tension between how almost literal your films are about how they're about your life and the way that we can talk about this more much later but the way that your films don't go out of their way to telegraph their literalness and quote-unquote authenticity formally is interesting because I think that's, you know, going ahead to still processing, that's a piece of feedback that that film has gotten that I find almost backhanded, interesting and good is people saying that it feels too polished. And I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the joke. Thanks for listening, folks. You can hear the rest of the commentaries on this podcast feed or find them on filmformally.com. Paige Smith is our associate producer and Amanda Avery is this episode's editor. 
This podcast was recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Till next time.